Hello, and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast on Q With. I'm your host, Alon Leviton, and I had the great pleasure of speaking with Emmy-winning composer and artist Jeff Russo, whose music you've heard in many epic franchises, including Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Fargo, Altered Carbon, Legion, The Umbrella Academy, and more. In our wide-ranging conversation, we discussed Pink Floyd guitar melodies, the fun, emotionally resonant, swashbuckling sound of Star Trek, what it feels like to write a mega-hit song, collaborating with the great Zoe Keating, tips for time management, the ever-present fear of failure, how composers translate ideas into music, the name of Jeff's band with Noah Hawley, why empathy and the ability to communicate supersedes musical talent, and so much more. Jeff's incredible scores to Star Trek Discovery and Picard are out now worldwide via Lakeshore Records. Let's start from the beginning. If you could give us a little bit of background, where you grew up. I know um, you've spoken in other interviews about uh, your uncle's piano as oh. your sort of first foray into music. Is that accurate? I mean, sure, Uncle Mike. <clears throat> he had a he had an upright piano at his house and that was you know certainly where I sat down at a piano for the very first time I might I think maybe I was six I don't know maybe younger um and you know my his so he was a piano tuner and piano tech and had a piano shop mm-hmm. um and his wife was a piano teacher, music teacher. Um, and they were very, I, I wouldn't say instrumental, but certainly like really there um, when I first started becoming interested in music. And, you know, I, I don't know how much that had to do with where I ended up with music, but it certainly certainly had something to do with my loving starting to love music at a very early age did you were you like you know if you i imagine a kid tinkering around on a piano and i know i'm asking you to access some pretty deep memories (laughs) but um do you have any sense of what your tinkering was or were you thinking in any sense of composition performing were you just like this is an interesting looking weird thing I actually don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories of playing the piano with my aunt or my cousin um, were in playing, um, in playing heart and soul, you know, mm-hmm. and learning how to play the bottom part and then learning how to play the melody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there be that being a, a two person, a two person piece. Um, and I, you know, other than that, I don't know that I was thinking in terms of anything creative. You know, mm-hmm. I just liked the idea of making music, you know, that sounded good to me. It sounded fun and it was fun. I, I believe you then got a violin, clarinet, uh, snare drum, and then you landed on a, your first drum set. Is that right? Well, you know, you, that's sort of a simplification of the whole thing. Um, so in the fourth grade, they made you choose an instrument to play in the orchestra. And I chose violin. And 
I hated violin mm-hmm. um, that year. So then I chose um, the next year I chose clarinet. That was in the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really like that. In the sixth grade, I was I chose percussion and I was on the snare drum and sort of worked on uh, orchestral percussion. And then I liked that. Um, but really, really what I wanted to do was play drums, like, you know, drum kit. And um, my mom got me a drum kit when I was in the seventh grade, after the seventh grade, I think. Um, and that's when I started playing, you know, rock music. You know, started playing along to pop records, and the radio, and 70s rock records. And that was sort of my foray into, into being, you know, in a band. And, and were there, I think you've spoken about Pink Floyd. Um, were there, in addition to Pink Floyd, were there other sort of linchpin bands that you were like, well, this is fucking cool? I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin, um, the Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, all of the standards that you think about, you think about rock music of the 70s and the 80s, the Eagles, um, mm-hmm. you know, lots. Boston. And, and, Boston. and with Pink Floyd in particular, you know, there's a synth element to it, well, right? Yeah, I mean, there was, it was less about that, you mm-hmm. know, really what, it, what intrigued me about Pink Floyd was the structure of melody and the way the guitar played in and out of that and how, how Dave Gilmore made music you know with with his guitar which is you know one of the reasons why i sort of abandoned the drums and and went to guitar i would say that was probably secondary you know the primary reason why i wanted to play guitar is because the guitar player got all the girls (laughs) and i didn't want to be a drummer in the band i wanted to be the guitar player in the band and so i i picked up i was in a band playing drums and i just taught myself how to play guitar when the the guitar player would leave his guitar at my house because we would we would rehearse in my house because I wasn't moving the drums, but it was easier to move guitars, so they would come over. Um, and uh, he'd leave his guitar, and I just taught myself how to play. And then eventually wanted to be the guitar player in the band. So, so melody, uh, you touched upon melody, and I'm sort of jumping around because, but I really wanted to ask you about this because you just have I feel like you have that gift of melody that is so rare. I'm so curious to know if you have a specific approach to writing melodies, generally speaking, whether we're talking about songs or whether we're talking about score. Um, you know, I just know that you have this gift for hooky melodies. It's almost like when I listen to your music, everything seems, um, like I said, songs and score. There's something very lyrical to my ear. Um, almost like a shark that never stops swimming, you know, or, or else it dies. There's just a lot, there's a hook. It's just full of hooks. And I'm curious, what is your approach to melody? I, I don't know that I have a specific approach to melody. I, I think that, you know, I'm not going to say that melodies come naturally to me, but the thought of writing music, like when I sit down to write music, melodies sort of come to mind as I'm playing something 
you know, and as I'm looking at, certainly if I'm, I'm looking at a scene or thinking about a script or thinking about a story, you know, melodies are at the forefront of my mind, right? They're, they're the first thing I think about, you know, maybe that's in conjunction with a chord progression. And, and that sort of went to how I would write songs alone or with my band or whatever, we, we would sit around and we would, you know, play some chords on a, on a guitar and sing along. And, you know, even if we were humming, you know, for me, since, especially in my band, I was never really that much of a lyricist, but, you know, I would, I would play guitar along um, with uh, Emerson. We would just sort of hum melodies. I would hum something, he would hum something. You know, that was sort of how we went about writing songs. And I, I just assume that that just bleeds into how I write instrumental music. You know, um, it's just no words. And that's just the thing that I do naturally. Whether or not, whether or not that means that it's something that comes easily or not, is not what I'm saying. I, I just think that that's, that's my natural sort of go-to place is... I'm thinking more about the melody than I am thinking about what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. If you don't, if you don't mind me sort of drilling down on this and mm. um, how do you, is it, is it just taste? You know, is it literally just, well, I like this. I don't like that. This feels right. You know, the sort of personification of the melody where it's, it feels like it wants to be X, Y, Z, or that just doesn't feel right. This is my taste. Or do you have any sort of general guiding principles or a language by which you operate, you know, in terms of talking about the shape or the contour of the melody or phrasing or anything like that? Yeah, that that's always really dictated by what I'm sort of working in and around, right? So it really all depends on how I'm going about writing. Some projects I write music prior to seeing picture. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sort of make stuff work to picture. Sometimes I'm writing music solely to picture. And I think when I'm doing that, like a lot of what I'm looking at dictates how I write any given melody. Certainly dialogue can, can do that. Like, you know, but I, I think for me, a guiding principle is always sim simple is better. Mm -hmm. um, and and right. the more simple the melody, the easier it is to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my I think my job as a composer for for narrative is to find the path of least resistance from the the view of it to the emotional connection. Right. To 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 draw a line between the emotion and the viewer and how can I connect the viewer to the scene or connect the viewer to the um to the character and that's you you know that can be done from chords or from melodies or from rhythm and you know that's where i that that's the thing that i sort of take the most care on is how how do i do that in the most effective simplest way mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense when when you say now you know creating a through line between the emotion that i now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you're saying the emotion that you're experiencing, the characters are experiencing, um, or, or the narrative is calling for, connecting that to the viewer. How do you assign sort of point of view 
you seem to have a very um, clear sort of confident, um, what's the word? Narrative goal in mind. And I'm wondering if that, if that is something that is trial by error or is also intuitive. I mean, I think intuit, you know, intuitiveness is, is a part of what we do, mm -hmm. right? I think, you know, it's definitely, it starts out by playing, you know, pin the tail on the donkey in the dark, <laughs> where you, you really don't know anything until you know something, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I read a script or I watch a, you know, watch a scene or watch a cut or, or anything. And, you know, I decide on how I want to proceed. Now, that decision is based solely on a feeling, on a gut feeling, right? Like, how, what do I feel? But, you know, the idea is make a choice, make a decision and go with it, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Because I never want to be like halfway in, halfway out. I, I want to figure out what I think is right and do that. And that's not always the right thing. That's not always the, you know, the right idea. Um, but making a decision and committing to that decision is the first step of, I think, creating a good score. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you find that what, when you are like, do you have a feeling when you've really nailed it? For example, I mean, you have been involved in massive, you know, this is outside of scoring, but you've had massive hits, you know, mega hits um, with, with your band. Do you, do you feel that that was going to be a hit? Did you, did you have a sense like we struck lightning? Well, no, I, I feel like you never know that that's something you never know. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a good song when you hear it, right. Mm -hmm. You know, a song that touches your heart, you know, a song that pulls on the heartstrings or, you know, nails it like a really good chorus, you know, mm -hmm. or a really good verse or just a really well-crafted, well-written song, you know, and with that, those songs that we had that people connected with, we as a, as a group could feel that those were songs that people could connect with, whether or not they would, you know, that's, there's so many things that go into having a hit song. It's like, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time with the right song, you know, know the right person who talks to the right radio person or talks to the right, you know, streaming person to put your song on the playlist. You know, it, it, there's so many different ways that that happens that there's never really knowing, you know, that you've hit, you've struck lightning or, or you know, you can't ever know. But you can know that, like, you, you've written something that is emotionally meaningful. Now, when you say now, when you say emotionally meaningful, what's interesting to me there is a question of how conscious you are of the audience, because there's 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 what's emotionally meaningful for you. Well, that's all you can. That's all you have. Mm -hmm. All you ever have is that because music is subjective. Right. So mm -hmm. I never have what's music, what's musically or what's emotionally meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. I only have what's emotionally meaningful to me. So. I have to try to connect. Mm -hmm. And if I can feel connected, then maybe someone else can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I won't ever know and can't ever know what actually connects to other people. I can guess based on my own experience. And the more experience you have connecting, the more you get a sense 
for what can work and what might not work mm -hmm. in any given situation. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, Diane Warren is the perfect example of that. She's written how many hit songs? I mean, I did countless, countless numbers of hit songs. At some point, I assume she comes to realize like, oh, okay, so like this type of thing that I write actually connects with people. So I want to put it in this world and I want to put it here, you know, but I know that she also writes from a, an emotional point of view and, and she probably feels around in, in the dark as well. You know, there's a little bit of both. There's, there's that mix of, of, you know, experience and also like the creative part, which is the thing that you can't, you can't put your finger on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you've said, I don't mean to butcher what you've said before, but you said something to the degree in a previous interview that I found interesting that for songs, lyrics and the singer is king and for scoring narrative and dialogue is king. Um, is that accurate? And, or can you expand upon that? Well, you know, like for me, writing scores, like writing a song, but the actor is the singer. Right. And, you know, but there's not always dialogue, but there's always story. There's always something you're trying to convey. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, the narrative is always king and um, or queen. <laughs> and and the dialogue, certainly when there is dialogue, that's always the leader of the pack as well. So, you know, I look at it in the same way, you know, like when when sort of coming up with parts and arrangements and stuff for a song. You always try to stay out of the way of the singer. You don't want to walk on what the singer's doing because the singer is leading. You know, that's the top line. And, you know, that that goes the same for the narrative. So, yeah. Cool. Um, as far as something like Star Trek, first of all, what was your relationship with Star Trek prior to working on it? Well, I mean, prior to working on it, I was just a big fan. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Certainly prior to working on it, I hadn't been into Star Trek for a while because, you know, there had been only a few movies in the previous 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my band was on tour and I used to take videotapes of The Next Generation with me on tour to watch on the tour bus. You know, so I, I was a big fan of The Next Generation, a big fan of the Star Trek a franchise and all those movies and but you know what i would say is i never really thought twice about the music because mm -hmm. i it wasn't about the music it was about star trek so mm -hmm. i did sort of start to get into the music as i began down the road of you know starting a career as a film and television composer and that, then it became a whole, opened up a whole other world of Star Trek to me. So. How would you, how, how would you describe the Star Trek sound? I have to imagine there were many conversations about that in the beginning of the Well, film. you know, the general aspect of Star Trek is that it's, it's swashbuckling and, and emotional and fun and, mm -hmm also deep you know and that sort of goes inside and out all of those you know all of the things television and film it's like the film scores are 
a little deeper emotionally than the television scores were, television scores of the 90s, I should say. Um, but the television scores were just as, you know, just as fun. And those stories were fun. So it, you know, sort of one helped the other. And when you have a sort of pre-existing iconic theme, does that create, it could be both. I mean, does it create more inspirational fodder or is it more challenging to work around that? I think it's not that it's more challenging. I think that it's actually, I would say it's fun. so much fun to be able to connect all these different worlds you know and all these different scores and all these different storytelling devices which span um you know from the original series all the way to um from the original series all the way to enterprise you know yeah i think um i, I really just think that you're this modus toolkit um that you know I've, I've explored a little bit is really incredible uh that you, that you did for star trek and i'm wondering you know I, th I think the origin of this was the idea of what you can do with mock-ups versus you know actual players what what does get lost between a mock-up and an orchestra i mean you know the human the human element is the most important thing and you know our the mock-ups that we make 
there's something about putting hands on on instruments that really changes the way you hear it mm-hmm. and every instrument is played differently um, every measure um, when you start using samples it just it gets cold mm-hmm. and you know the samples now are oh my god they're so much better than they ever were prior to to now um and i would say you can make the most convincing mock-ups now but you do lose some of the warmth of of real players because you know samples are just all linear and it's all the same and yes they can program all the stuff into it articulations and bow changes and a million different things. Um, But, you know, all of that little, all of the little mistakes or the little differences between players, a little bit of here and a little bit there really make for a a very important part of what the sound of an orchestra does. So, you know, mock-ups sound great, but when you put real people in a room, it, it, it really does make a score come alive. Do you ever change anything in terms of the, the actual composition itself where you say, oh, well, this made sense as a mock-up, but now that there are yeah. human beings and, and, and do you find those changes? Like, is there something characteristic of those changes? There, there isn't any one particular thing that normally gets changed. I would say like I make decisions when I'm, I'm conducting the orchestra based on the way they're playing. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes dynamics change, sometimes rhythmic elements change, sometimes people play it differently than the, than, than the samples could do it, the way it's programmed. So, I mean, a lot of things can change. Mm-hmm. Many mm-hmm. things. There isn't one thing specifically that requires changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what about your mixes? I just, I would love to know, I just hear so much, it's, everything is just so perfectly in its place. And I'm so curious how much of that is composition versus arrangement versus production versus mix, or do you have any sort of guidelines about how things should sound? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I do have some guidelines to how I like things to sound. You know, I have an engineer mixer who does all of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of that balance stuff comes from orchestration. A lot of that balance stuff comes in the recording process, making changes like asking violins to be louder, or asking cellos to play quieter. You know, or or sound differences. But in the end, the balance, you know, the balance is struck by all of those things it's, you know composition orchestration engineering recording mixing so many things that go into it um but you know with with star trek especially you know going into you know having having written and recorded over 80 episodes of star trek um mm-hmm. between discovery and picard and you know the main titles for uh, for uh, for strange world um and a number of different things you know, we've, we've sort of come up with a way that we know how to do things. And it's, it's sort of like, a, you know, it's definitely the, the language is secondhand at this point. Mm-hmm. What is the difference in terms of video games, composing for video games? Because, I mean, the, the narrative structure 
Well, not the structure. The narrative can change based on choices. So how do you approach it differently, if at all? Um, you know, I've done a few games. I, I haven't done many, but I've done a few. And what I would say is, like, you know, one of one of my favorite projects I've worked on is um, What Remains of Edith Finch. And that was a, a video game I did that was very emotionally intuitive and deep and you know wasn't about it wasn't about winning it was about experiencing to me that was great mm. you know if somebody said i want you to do this shoot up game like shoot 'em up game you know where it's this big world and you've got a gun trying to shoot people and i i'm not even sure that i would be interested in doing that because mm-hmm. um, that doesn't feel like emotionally connected and that doesn't feel like an experience that just feels like action and you know action for action's sake bores me mm-hmm. it really does which is why i i mean i tend to not like to write lots of action music because you know to me action music is like okay i'm doing action music in an action scene mm-hmm. you know so it's like gilding the lily slightly i always like to try to do something a little different um and it doesn't always work out that way you know especially with Star Trek, where that's the way we treat those action sequences with action music and they're fun and they work. Um, you know, it's the same thing for, for some video games, but you know, I have a lot, I have a lot more fun. I would say I'm a lot more interested in doing things that are slightly different than, than you would expect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, video games, video games gives you a little bit more opportunity to do that because you're not literally stuck with a specific narrative. Things can change with choices. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken a bit about how it's sort of like you're entering into something akin to a band situation with um, a director or showrunner um, or it could be game developer uh, when, whenever you're onboarding these projects and you have this ongoing thing with um relationship with Noah Hawley uh how did that develop and how do you like what's the name of your Noah Hawley band huh. Huh, well at one point we called ourselves it's always blue because <laughs> we made that record it's always blue mm-hmm. um we don't really have a band name you know we our relationship developed after he hired me to do his first television show that he, was his that he created. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a lot of fun. We became friends. We became close friends in that, in that collaboration, we became friendly. And then we did another thing and we became friendlier. And then we did Fargo and we became really friendly. And now, you know, I count him among some of my closest friends. I mean, he, we, we've shared a creative, um, a creative experience that is rare. You know, as a filmmaker-composer relationship, it's really special because he, being a musician, understands how to speak the language, but he's also, he knows how to get what he wants very well. He knows how to explain what he wants very well, but he also gives me the space to deliver what he wants. He's not the kind of filmmaker that micromanages that aspect. 
He's mm-hmm. very big picture. Like, I really want it to feel like this. And can we do something that's a little more like this? Or can we do something that does this feeling? You know, occasionally I get that note from him. Like, you know, have you tried this whole piece in a minor key as opposed to a major key? And, you know, he's very intuitive that way and very like right on the, right on the money. He knows exactly how to say what he, you know, how to get what he wants. Like I said, that is, that is an example of the kind of conversation we can have and that back and forth can happen and be very effective because I can say, Oh, I tried that. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I started writing the thing in minor and I made it major because I wanted to do this. Um, And he might say at that point, well, let me hear it in minor. And then I'd send it to, I'd change it back to minor and send it to, you know, um, that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm really impressed by this, you know, uh, these long-term relationships that you have. I mean, it's really hard to have a band stay together and it's really hard to have a, you know, um, director composer relationship that's, that lasts in this way. How do you do it? How do you, how do you manage to keep these relationships so solid? I, you know, I, I don't know that there's something that I, I do specifically. I think that, um, one of the things that I think is really important in the filmmaker composer relationship is the composer's ability to listen and to translate. You know, we were, we were basically translators. That is what composers are. We translate from English into music and, you know, whether that's telling, telling the story, helping to tell the story and translating those words into music, translating a filmmaker's, you know, actual notes into music, like what, what they're saying to, to us. Would you feel like it is the job ever of the composer to give some serious pushback or die on any hills? If you, if, or is it to execute their vision? Well, I think it all depends on your relationship with the, filmmaker mm-hmm. you know some filmmakers are very trusting and some filmmakers are not some mm-hmm. filmmakers know exactly what they want and they don't want anything else mm-hmm. and some filmmakers don't know what they want they want to be presented with choices mm-hmm. um, some filmmakers don't know what they want and they just want you to take care of it and they just believe that you're, you're you know it, it's different with every filmmaker mm-hmm. um, so there isn't a single answer to that question. Mm-hmm. When, when you're making music, is there an element or situation where you just really find yourself at your happiest or, or a stage or phase of the process? Yeah, when I'm done. <laughs> is, that, is that true? Like, you, do, you, yeah. do you have a sort of celebration or, or catharsis? Is there relief? What, what do you experience? I think all of the above. I don't know about a celebration, but there's certainly catharsis and there's certainly relief. <laughs> when something is finished, it's it feels good. Like, I'm done. Interesting. So, that's a, that's, that's a big part of it. Like, I'm always, I have a lot of worry, <laughs> you know? There's a lot of worry in, in what I do, the way I do it. 
you know. And um, I, I would that, love to, sorry to cut you off, but I would actually love to ask you about that because when I, I just hear so much confidence, I, I hear zero doubt in all of your music. Huh. So I'm just. Well, I mean, the idea is that you can have fear, just don't let them see you sweat. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, um, you know, I think I have maybe what any artist has. It's like, is it good enough? Does it, is it right? Is it good? I mean, I have confidence in myself, right? Mm-hmm. To, I believe that when I make a choice, I believe and think I'm making the right choice. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is the right choice. But at the time that I make that choice, I'm, I believe that it's the right choice. That, that makes sense. It's just so, so hard. The confidence, the sound of confidence comes from. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, but, it's, oh, go ahead. My, my, my thought is that I don't like to second guess myself. When I second guess myself, I throw out what I'm second guessing and I just start again. Because I don't want to ever feel, I don't want to not be comfortable with what I'm delivering, right? And if I'm second guessing what I've written, why would I deliver that? Mm-hmm. But there is still the idea of acceptance, right? So I send a piece of music to Noah, for instance, and, you know, there's that. There's that moment of fear right before I hit send. <laughs> then there's the waiting to hear back. And when I don't hear back for, say, three or four days, I'm like, I'm fired. Or he hated it. <laughs> or it was all wrong. You know, thankfully, it's not usually like that. Thankfully, it's like, oh, I didn't get to it. I'll get to it tomorrow or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um occasionally it's like well what what are you thinking here or this doesn't feel like the right vibe i definitely want to um deliver um for for my filmmakers that i'm working for um, so there's the fear that i won't you know mm-hmm. there's that it's the fear of fear of failure and that fear of failure can be pretty um pretty powerful <laughs> yeah i i mean honestly it's really I appreciate you saying this because it's really refreshing to hear someone, to hear Jeff Russo, you know, say something like that. I mean, everybody, it's a good point. Obviously everybody feels these things, but someone of your, let's call it stature, um, articulating that I think can go a long way. So thank you. You know, I, I, I assume that I'm not the only person who feels those things. Um, I would think that, you know, at the moment you stop feeling those things is also at the moment that you stop caring what the people you're working for think. Good point. Um, And if you're at that point, then you're no longer collaborating. Mm -hmm. And this is a collaborative art form. Mm -hmm. You know, whether somebody's, helping me make the music and and joining me in the creation of the music or not. And I'm just joining the filmmaker and 
in making their film and slash television show slash video game, um, it's collaboration no matter what. Like there's collaborations on so many different levels. And the moment that you just don't feel any of that is the moment that you've let go of what the collaborators feel and then you're no longer collaborating. You know, mm -hmm. Then you're just creating and giving it to them saying, all right, see ya. That makes total sense. It's a great point. Um, and speaking of collaborators, do you have a sort of dream project or dream collaborators that you you'd love to work with or on? No, collaborate. Collaboration is is a is a funny game, right? There's all kinds of collaborations, and if you're talking about like, is there someone I'd love to actually write a score with? Sit mm. down and write a score with. Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I love writing. I love writing music with Zoe Keating, mm. and we've done, we've collaborated on a number of things, and I truly enjoy it. The first time we collaborated was by design, not not my own design, by film a filmmaker's design, mm -hmm. who wanted to have both of us work together. We had I'd never met her. I mean, it's years ago. Um, and ever since then, you know, I've we wanted to continue to want to work together on things. It's really great. How would you uh, sort of characterize the, I don't know, the workflow between you two? You said she would come up with an idea, then you would send an idea. Were you? Well, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a rule. There was no rules in place. It was like she would write something and send it to me, and then I'd be like, "What if we do this here?" And then go to this place, and then I would extend it or expand it, and vice versa. I would send her a piano thing, and she would put cello on it, and then be like, "Well, what if we did this chord here?" And then look, I can do this all with the cellos, and then I would add my piano to it. It was just a back and forth. We sent things back and forth to each other, and it was when, when we were working on themes for uh, for Oslo specifically mm -hmm. that that's how they came about. Mm -hmm. And that's how the entire, the entire score was written, really. Nice. Did you... Um, and we were, looking for, we were looking for a main, a main part of something. And it was really funny. It was like, I wrote this one cue that the filmmaker was like, I don't know if this is working here. But Zoe was like, but that melody is so great. What if we put that melody here and it becomes the main theme in this one part? And she did that, and I was like, that's working really well. What if we added this? It was just that kind of collaboration, just a back and forth. And that's, to me, the most fulfilling. Do you have any sort of um, filter in terms of the projects that you uh, you sign on to? Like, I, I know that you've, you've spoken a bit about a, a level of emotional resonance, and I, I imagine that's one filter. Do you have any others? Like, this needs to, I don't know, uh resonate with me and or anything else you know it's it's always hard to know it you know there can be there are a number of different ways to decide on that kind of you know decide on what you want to do mm -hmm. you know a lot of it is does the story resonate with me mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is do i like the characters and then the next step is, do I like the people? Mm -hmm. Like, 
I, if it's a someone I've worked with before or someone I like a lot and someone gets a, we get along and it's fun, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty much willing to do just about any project. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. because, you know, gosh, it's not enough. It's not enough time in life to to waste it. You know, working with people or making art with people who you really don't care for. Do you, and when you said I have, you know, one of the filters is that you have to like the characters. When you say like, um, well, they have, be, they have to be interesting. They have to be in. They have to be compelling and engaging. They have to resonate with me on and, one on some level. And and do you when you're reading uh, a script or you're seeing something, and you may or may not sign on. Are you at that at that stage? Are you experiencing it just as a sort of um, viewer or reader or is your music hat being triggered like are you thinking oh i could do a theme for this or i can oh, do i mean look the, i mean the fact is like if that happens then my question is answered yeah that right? mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if it doesn't happen well, then there's more things to think about time management how do you do it you know schedules always shrink or expand to the amount of time that you need Right. So if I need to have something done in five days, I get it done in five days. Like, you know, you do what you have to do to get it done. Mm -hmm. But I I don't overdo. Right. Now, I'm always talking to composers like, oh, my God, I had to work until four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, how much of the work that you did between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. is good? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, it's all shit. I'm like, well, then what's the difference between doing it and not? Mm-hmm. you know and waiting like if you're gonna do garbage work between 11 p.m and 4 a.m then why do it yeah that makes because sense. you're just gonna have to redo it so what's the difference like i don't understand like tell them you need three more hours four more hours like you know it, and sometimes you don't get it well then just get the work done faster sure i'm gonna ask you uh, three three rapid fire questions if you don't mind sure um, uh who are your biggest creative influences oh they come, i mean they come to mind now i i, I can't, it's not an answerable question because creative influence doesn't necessarily come from any one particular individual score album piece of art you know vista like it comes from a gajillion different places so you know i i would i i would say that i am inspired by everything everything inspired i wake up in the morning and sometimes i'm inspired sometimes i'm not um you know a conversation that you have anything can be inspiring anything can be an artistic influence i read an article that that was that that can influence something that you write so there isn't there isn't a true answer to that question and i couldn't tell you like today what it is right now i'm driving and I'm looking out over the ocean right now. It's beautiful. It's not. It's not terribly inspiring. Mm-hmm. Been on the ocean before, and looking at the ocean, and been inspired by what I'm seeing. So you know, really, it's an unanswerable question. Got it. Um, this is a mean question that I ask all composers. I'm not. I'm not religious. It's just a thought experiment that you can answer however you want. Um, you get in front of God, 
in heaven or you're at the pearly gates or you're at purgatory, you're asked to perform or play a song. Do you have, how would you respond? I, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I think I would just be frozen. Like, I think I would just <laughs> not be able to, not be able to perform. Got it. Um, last question. I'm conscious of the time. Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but um, practical advice for upcoming musicians or composers. More important than the ability to write really fancy music, right? More important than the ability to write lots of notes and make it sound big or make it sound like John Williams or, you know, more important than that ability is an ability to communicate and have meaningful conversations about story, about how to tell the story, about art, about how you feel or how a filmmaker feels. That ability to communicate includes the ability to understand and then be empathetic. The, the key part of being a good composer, I think, is empathy. Because you have to have empathy for the character, empathy for the filmmaker, empathy for the story. You have to be able to, to emotionally connect in order to help tell the story. Um, and I think that supersedes any and all ability to write I love that. I mean, obviously, you have to be able to write music, but there are many people who can write very good music. There's lots of people who are very capable at writing really, really gorgeous music, but not all of them are good communicators and not all of them are truly empathetic individuals. Um, and I would say they have a, probably have a bit of a harder time connecting with material. That makes sense. Um... I, I really appreciate that. And I'm going to have a think on that. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for your time and all your incredible music. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, man. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you later.